Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Alma 30 through 31. This is really big on the Antichrist. And there's a couple groups of them, and Alma's going to contend with them. Alma chapter 30 is so applicable today, isn't it, Bryce? Yes, and that's the thing. President Benson said that the Book of Mormon brings people to Christ in two ways. First, it teaches about Christ, all the goods. What do we need to do? The covenants. How do I tap into his grace? But then President Benson said it exposes the enemies of Christ because the very enemies that they faced in the Book of Mormon are the enemies we face today. And this is a very common one. 20 years ago, if I'd asked a group of Latter-day Saints, any age group, how many of you know and love someone that has not only left the church, but is actively fighting against it, trying to destroy it, trying to destroy faith? Raise your hand. I wonder how many hands would go up 20 years ago. But if I ask that question today, which I do, I frequently ask groups of Latter-day Saints, how many of you know and love someone who has not only left the church, but is actively fighting against it, trying to destroy it, trying to really do damage to church beliefs and to destroy people's faith? Almost every hand goes up. We all know someone. And then on occasion, I've said, can you tell me who it is? Not a name, but a relationship to you. And I have literally heard father, mother, brother, son, best friend, mission companion. I've even heard former bishop. People very, very close to our inner circles are leaving the church, and that's their choice. I can respect that. But then they're turning around and trying to fight against it. They're actively trying to destroy other people's faith, and that's when they become a Korahor. And the reason these chapters are in the Book of Mormon is to help us know how to contend. And far too long, we've just sat back and let them have free range. And we'd allow them to have an uncontested slam dunk. And what we need to do is we need to know, we need to have a strategy for dealing with Antichrist. And this means a lot to me because I've had a lot of dear friends, a lot of people I love come to me absolutely crushed, saying that my daughter or my father or my husband has left the church and I don't know what to do. And I always sit down with Alma chapter 30 and 31, and we walk through. There's some wonderful news here, but there's also some very logistical things. Here's how you do it. Here's what you do. Because kitchen table becomes controversial, and what do they allow their children to talk about or the person in their life? What do they talk about when they're in their home? Well, here's some help. So we're going, to take, we're going to take a look at the four Antichrists in the Book of Mormon. By my count, there are four Antichrists in the Book of Mormon, and we did, uh, we did a podcast on one of them, and we brought in some of the others. Now we're going to do a podcast on the other two. So back in Jacob chapter 7, we saw Sherem. And then in Alma chapter 1, we were introduced to Nehor, which we've talked a great deal about. Notice the order of Nehor comes up a lot in the Book of Mormon. So we've got Sherem, who comes and then fizzles out, but Nehor, who lasts basically the whole Book of Mormon. And then we have Korahor, which is kind of the primary Antichrist, because Mormon chooses to kind of give us the fullness of his account. We don't have the full account on Nehor. And then we have the Zoramites. Now, we don't have Zoram. I'd love to hear the teachings of Zoram himself. 
but we have the Zoramites, and we hear their doctrine, and they are actively trying to destroy faith. And so we're going to combine them as we focus on Korahor, and what I'd like to do is give comfort to those of you who have a loved one who has left the church and is now fighting against it, trying to destroy the other people you love. I remember in our podcast before we talked about how there were four different groups, and these different groups of Antichrist, if we put them in a room and we were to sit around swapping stories, they would not agree with each other. They would agree in one thing, that there's no Christ, but they certainly wouldn't agree with each other. And the same thing is here with Alma 30 and 31. The Zoramites are acknowledging a supreme creator. They're just doing it different. They're kind of like, hey, we're saved. We're awesome. You're not. And Korahor, his approach is there is no supreme creator. You guys are stupid to believe in this. You're, you're silly. It's part of a frenzied mind. And so I think in today's society, wouldn't you agree that Korahorism is a lot more prevalent than Zoramitis? Yes. And so that's why we focus a lot on Korahor's reaction. So I have a list of five things I would suggest in dealing with an antichrist or an anti-Mormon literature, a Korahor, the Korahors of your life. And the first one is important, and that is you have to learn to recognize them. You have to learn to recognize their tactics, not so much to put a label on them, but to recognize this is how they're coming after you. And this is where Korahor becomes very intriguing. So let me read through Korahor's comments and see if you can find two of his tactics. Now, one of them is the F word, not what you're thinking about, but all Antichrist will use the F word. And you need to be prepared for some variation of the F word when an Antichrist is coming. Now, those of you who are freaking out, bear with me here because I kind of want a little shock and awe here because this is a very important subject. So watch for the F word in Korahor's teachings. Mike's here kind of shaking his head, freaking out a little bit. Now, forgive me, I don't mean to be offensive, but I just want to just make a point here because this is so subtle and it's very powerful. So starting in Alma chapter 30, you know, verse 6, there was, a, there was an antichrist, and now he begins to speak. Verse 13, you're going to hear his two tactics right away. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope. That's what I mean by the F word. Korahor and all of his cohorts are going to try and make you feel foolish. And there's so many ways they do that. They beride your beliefs. Their tactic is to make you feel foolish and restricted. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and a vain hope. See that? You're a fool and you're bound down. Why do you yoke yourselves? So many people when they leave the church say they feel free, I'm free, as if religion is a binding yoke. Verse 14, he says they had foolish traditions. Verse 16, behold, it is the effect of a frenzied mind. There's another F word. You are frenzied. You are foolish. And this derangement of your minds comes for these reasons. Verse 18, he says that they should lift up their heads, causing them to lift up their heads in wickedness. Verse 23, the priest comes, Gedona comes, and Korahor says to him, because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down, 
under the foolish ordinances and performances which are laid down by ancient priests to usurp power and authority. See that? Oh, your leaders, they know secrets. They know stuff that they don't want you to know so that they can control you. Recognize these tactics? You're a fool. You're bound down. These are foolish ordinances. You wear funny underwear. All these things. I just keep seeing these tactics all over social media. You're fools. And your leaders are trying to usurp power and authority to keep you in ignorance so that you can't lift up your heads and they want to bring you down. Verse 24, you are in bondage. You say that this people is free. I say that they are in bondage. Verse 27, Thus you, he's speaking to the high priest, you have led away people after the foolish traditions of your fathers and according to your own desires, and you keep them down as it were in bondage. There it is, foolish and restricted. That's the tactic. They want to make you think that you dumb Mormons, you just follow the prophet like blind sheep. Or how could you foolishly believe in the translation of the Book of Mormon? And they say it with such derogatory tones, because if they can get you to feel foolish, you'll walk away. If they can make you feel restricted, we fight for our independence. That is just in our bones. That's a fire inside of our bones that we fight for our independence. All you have to do is look around and see how many times society will fight for their independence when someone's suggesting that they're restrictive or they're less free. And so it's a subtle tactic. If you can convince members of the church that they're less free, that they're restricted, they will fight for their independence and then they will walk away. And we don't want to feel stupid. I just want to say there is rational defense for so many things. I I remember talking to a church historian where he says the danger in church history, it's not in uh, knowing church history, it's in not knowing enough. And I think it's important for you, the listener, to realize that the arguments that the Antichrist used today can be defended if we meet them on their own grounds. If we take the religious ground, we just put it to the side and say, okay, let's talk about rational belief. We'll do it on your terms. So you want to make fun of sacred religious clothing. Well, then Jews, Muslims, Catholics, you know, we're going to make fun of that too. Same thing with the idea of creation. Let's talk about the rational side of it. You can use their terminology and defend it, at least to the point where I I call it the checkmate idea, the idea that there's evidence on both sides of the creation. I think that we can have an ideal speech condition. And if they come and say, hey, Bryce, I think this is stupid, but here's why I learned this in college, or I learned this in class, or I read this internet site, I think it's good for us to say, okay, well, let's talk about it. Let's defend it, right? And it can be defended, don't you think? Absolutely. But many of them are asking questions, not because they want answers, but because they want us to question. And be wary of that condition, because you're not going to have an ideal speech condition when all they want to do is to destroy your faith. So what would you recommend in in that circumstance if all they want to do is just make you look stupid? What the high priest does to Korahor is he walks away. If that's the situation, if you don't want to talk rationally, if you don't want to have a dialogue, if all you want to do is cause me to question, if you want to say that I'm a fool and I'm restricted and you're not willing to have a conversation, then I'm done. The high priest just simply walks away and said, and would not speak to him. Because there's not a lot we can do. There's not a lot. There's not a lot you can do when their only motive is to destroy your faith. You can tell the difference between someone who's asking a question because they want an answer and they want a dialogue and they want to see your point of view and someone who's asking questions because they simply want to get you to question. I I just want to say there is rational defense 
for so many things. Absolutely. Now, there's a lot of things in faith that flat out we just have to have faith. We don't have a natural explanation for. On the other side of the coin is the idea that you have the Book of Mormon. It defies natural explanation. I'll give you an example. Like I'm, I'm working on translating right now Greek into English, and I'm just going through slowly some of the chapters in John. It takes a long time to produce text. I mean, hours. It's embarrassing how slow I am. And Joseph is just producing seven, eight, nine pages a day. And my assessment of this is it's not Joseph translating. It's the power of God. Yeah. But that defies explanation. But here's the other side of the coin. You have the Book of Mormon. Like, we have it. We can hold it in our hands. It came from somewhere. So whatever the explanation, which defies naturalistic understanding, we still have it, right? So does it defy naturalistic understanding to explain how Joseph Smith came up with that book in the 1820s? To come up with a rational explanation for the Book of Mormon is going to be as far-fetched as people claim believing what we claim is true. Yeah. And so you can always, there's I mean, two sides, there's I always two sides. If someone who says, I can't believe in God because it's just illogical, but I can believe in a Big Bang where all of a sudden nothing existed and then suddenly everything in the universe suddenly existed. Well, doesn't that take as much faith and doesn't that defy physics as much as you claim believing in God defies physics? So we can have rational discussions and we can see these from different points of view. But you got to be aware of the Korahors, and the way you can tell the difference is they are simply trying to make you feel foolish and restricted to get you to walk away. They just want you to question your beliefs. The other common element in all of these is they will take truth and twist it in such a way that it invites you to walk away from Christ. See, back in Sherem, Sherem's doctrine was... Yes, we need to be saved, but we don't need a Jesus. We don't need a Savior because we can be saved by adherence to the law of Moses. Something else will save you. Something else besides the atonement of God's Son will save you. And I think the appeal there is our salvation is in our control, which is something we all want. But the false idea is, yes, you need saving. You can just do it some other way. Do you see the twist? Yeah, I think today we would say that it's secularism or humanism. Yes. Like, the humans can save themselves. We don't need God. Not necessarily Sherem's argument that the law will save us, but something else. Something else. That's the argument, right? Yes, and, and then, it's always a twist because, A, you need saving. Yeah. But the twist is that you can save yourself. And then Nehor's argument was, hey, God's going to save everyone. That God is, is powerful and he's going to save everyone. Now, there's a lot of truth to that, right? Every single human being born on this earth will be saved from death. And the vast majority of Heavenly Father's children, so much so that we could almost say all of them, will be saved into a kingdom of glory, at least the celestial kingdom, to the point where it really is a stated fact. It is a truth that God will save everyone. But the way Nehor uses that is to get you to relax. How many people say, oh, well, God's going to save everyone, so let's work harder? Is that natural? If you come to the conclusion that God's going to save everyone, do you work harder? Do you work just as hard? No. If God's going to save everyone, then why do you need to work so hard? So he takes a truth, and then he twists it. And then here in, in Alma with Korahor, his truth is very, very subtle, and this one's very common today. And I don't mean to be so bold, and let me just speak from experience. I have a bachelor's degree in biology, 
And believe me, I spent a lot of time talking about the theories of man on the origin of man. And Korahor's doctrine is simply this. Chapter 30, verse 17, Every man fares in his life according to the management of the creature. Therefore, every man prospered according to his genius, and every man conquered according to his strength. Now, there is a place where that is true. There is a place where beings fare according to their creature, that you prosper according to your genius, that the strong survive. And whatever something does is no crime. There is a legitimate place on earth where that is the rule, and it's among the animal kingdom. Among the animal kingdom, the only rule they are given is survival. They don't have a moral law. Baby spiders don't get in trouble if they eat their mother. You don't get in trouble if a buck defeats another buck to steal his does. Now, human beings would get in big trouble for that, but animals don't get in trouble because they don't have a moral law. Their law is survival. And so what Korahor is subtly trying to do here is suggest that humans obey that law, that humans are animals. And however you want to couch it, many of the theories of man come down to that simple argument that humans are animals, therefore we have to obey the law of animals. And that means survival of the fittest. And that means if I, it's justified in murdering people to make them go away so that my people are stronger. I think that's like the extreme end of it, right? The doing away with all civil law. And I don't think that Mormon in here is necessarily drawing that distinction, saying either or. And so I want to present a counter side to what Bryce is saying. And I think what his position is, not necessarily let's do away with civil law, but I think he wants to do away with religious law. Moral so, law. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of how I look at it. So you, if you look in verse 18, Mormon's like, this is Mormon's commentary. He says, this he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in wickedness, leading away many women and also men to commit whoredoms, telling them that when a man was dead, that was their, the end thereof. I think he's a modern day uh, sexual liberal, right? He's like, hey, you can sleep with whoever you want. I don't know if he's coming out saying, let's destroy civil law in our period of time, in our dispensation, on a macro level, this is Nazism. This is statism, right? Where I can just take over whatever country and come and I think that's on the extreme. I don't know if Korhor is in that position. My take on it is he wants to do away with a religious law, but the text doesn't really tell you. I think a lot of Korhors today are like, we just, we need to live in a world without religion. Man needs religion like a fish needs a bicycle. Some of those arguments. Verse 16, where he says, Christianity is a mental illness. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I've done a little bit on biology. I had to read a ton of Richard Dawkins when I was back in the day when I was in school. And to me, he is a modern day Korahor. And Richard Dawkins is, is a professor, very intelligent, knows about biology. And he's used that phrase. He said, Christianity is a mental illness. And he's gone on the affront and just attacked and attacked and attacked. And he's used his understanding of biology to say, because of what I know in this specialized field, all religion is hogwash. It's just all garbage, and you guys are crazy. And so he's a big deal. He's celebrated today as, as, as a, the, the front runner of atheism. And so this is relevant. Yeah, and it's always that you're a fool, 
you're restricted, or some twist on truth, whether it's, yes, you need to be saved, but something else will save you, or God is so kind and so generous that he'll save you, don't worry about it, and put your guard down, or you're an animal, therefore nothing's wrong. You can do that. There's no sin, because he's taking what's true among some of Heavenly Father's creations, and he plays it to us. And then you've got a whole nother twist among the Zoramites. If you go to chapter 31, they have a whole new twist, and that is God does have favorites. Now, it is true that God uses certain, he uses the house of Israel to do his work. He calls upon individuals, and it can certainly look like he has favorites, but he gives them a task to do. But you could take that and say, hey, see, God has favorites. God called upon the house of Israel. And there's two ways to destroy someone with that. God has favorites, and it's me. So, you know, here I am. I'm God's favorite. And we walk around boasting that we're God's favorite, and other people are just not, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so there's the twist. Or there's another subtle twist is, and that is, God has favorites, and I'll never be one of them. If Satan can get you to believe that doctrine, then he's one, because you give up hope. And that is a false doctrine because it defies everything that Jesus is trying to teach. Anyone who thinks that God has favorites and no matter what I do, I'll never be one of them. You have fallen prey to a twisted false doctrine. And so all of these are kind of how do you recognize them? Watch for the you're a fool, that Christianity is a derangement of your mind. It's a mental illness. Watch for you're restricted. You can't do this. You Mormons can't do this or I If he can get you to feel like you're not free, you will fight for your independence. If he can make you feel foolish, then you'll walk away because no one likes to feel stupid. Or if he can corrupt you with a twisted doctrine and get you to walk away, then they've won. So that's how they operate. Watch for those three things. I want to read this, Bryce. This is from Glenn Pearson and Reed Bankhead, and it just revolves around that word anti A lot of times anti means against. We talk about this in the last podcast with the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They were not against Nephi and Lehi, right? Uh, Different ways to look at that word. Here, anti does mean against, right? They are against Christ, but it also means other things. So Reed Bankhead and Glenn Pearson say, by Joseph Smith's day, the idea of an antichrist had evolved into the idea of an antichrist. The word antichrist is the Bible term for the false teachers in the church who taught a false god instead of a true Christ. The Greek preposition anti roughly translated means instead of. It also carries the meaning of to the face or to the face of or mirror image. The image in the mirror looking back at you is face to face with you. It looks like you, yet it has no substance. It is a counterfeit of you in a sense. It only appears to be you. So when John, in his epistles, spoke of the Antichrists, he was speaking of the belief of the Gnostics that God is a substanceless spirit rather than a resurrected being. Docetism. We've talked about that in the, in the John podcast. Such a God is like the image in the mirror, really nothing, a counterfeit. Through the centuries thereafter, the term Antichrist became Antichrist with a capital A, And by Joseph's day, it referred to those who oppose Christ. So the word has kind of evolved, but the point is, 
is that it's a mirror, it's a counterfeit. And I think one of the things that makes Korhor and Richard Dawkins and Nihor and some of these people so convincing is they always package what they're teaching with a ton of truth and with a ton of evidence. And then I and I will say this, they take the one thing about theism, one of the things about theism or faith in God is there's stuff in there that's just irrational, that just doesn't make any natural sense in the world that we live in, right? right? For example, the belief that someone came down from heaven and died and was resurrected. I've never seen a resurrected person. I've seen people die. I know what death is. I've watched animals die. We've buried them. Death is very real, very permanent, and resurrection defies logic. And so they'll take an idea that we just can't really understand naturally, and they'll say, you are so stupid to believe in this. And I think that the key is, and it's kind of what Bryce is talking about, like, is it somebody that I can have an ideal conversation with? Is it somebody that will be rational? Because there is basis for rational faith. There are arguments for it. But sometimes um, they don't want to listen. They just want to tear down. And like Bryce says, we need to understand and realize what they're doing. I think if we can see what they're doing, we can think more rationally and not be so emotional. I love this quote. It's so good. And here it is. It says, The argument does not create conviction. The lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. And what that quote means to me is this. If someone will have a conversation with me, I can provide arguments on the other side and say, okay, I hear what you're saying to the person who's arguing against faith. I hear your argument about this, but have you considered this? And then you give the other side of the coin. And there's evidence on both sides, evidentiary equilibrium. And what I mean by that is there's usually evidence on both sides of the equation to kind of balance it. And to me, here's why I believe this, Bryce. I don't believe in a God that wants to intellectually compel me to believe. I don't believe in a God that's going to put all the evidence on one side and make it so plain and so obvious that he exists as to physically force me to believe. And so because there's evidence on both sides, there always are going to be core whores, aren't there? Yep. Agency and choice is one of the defining characteristics of our Heavenly Father. He wants us to choose to believe. He's not going to force anyone. Therefore, the evidence that absolutely proves but also disproves God is gone. There is no definitive evidence to prove him or to disprove him. I'm not going to get it. And so you, it, is, it will always be an act of faith. So there's number one on my list of five. Learn how to recognize their tactics. What are they trying to do? So then you can have a rational discussion with someone, but you can avoid the, the, those who are just simply trying to destroy. Learn to recognize their tactics. They'll call you foolish. They'll suggest you're restricted, or they will teach a whole lot of truth, but with a twist to it so that it destroys faith. Okay, the next one comes from the Zoramites. What led the Zoramites astray? We get a great commentary from Mormon in Alma chapter 31. Before Alma goes in there and contends with the Zoramites, we get this comment, I think, from Mormon, verse 9 and 10. But they had fallen into great errors. Now, Mormon's the only one that would have known this because he has the full history here. But they had fallen into great errors, for they would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes, according to the law of Moses. Neither would they observe, and I love this phrase, the performances 
of the church. They would not, they had walked away from the performances of the church. And then he lists a few of them. A, to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily that they might not enter into temptation. Now, we have lots more performances than that. But you see what he's saying? God gives us performances to keep our faith grounded and to fill us with the Holy Ghost. They are strengths. They are safeguards. And if we walk away from the, 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 the performance of the church, we become vulnerable to the deception and the tactics of these antichrists. So you might have a wonderful conversation with your family. What are the performances of the church? May I ask, what are the daily performances of the church? What has God asked us to do daily? And are you fulfilling the performances of the church? What are the weekly performances of the church? What has the Lord asked us to do weekly? How about monthly? How about yearly? The Lord has all sorts of performances of the church which are designed to hold us safe and keep us grounded. And so I would suggest that daily reading of the Scriptures, daily prayer will give you a strength that you need. It will clarify the truths that you need in order to combat the twists of truth. It will give you the courage when someone tries to call you a fool. It will help you. So don't walk away from the daily performances of the church. Now, number three, let's go back to Alma and Korahor. And I love what Alma does here. And this is for all of you who have children trying to bring up conversations that destroy the church. Alma does not necessarily have an answer to every question, but what he does do is significant. It starts in verse 39. Alma simply says, I know there is a God, and also that Christ shall come. It is testimony that often quiets the critics. It is my testimony, my conviction, I know there's a God, and also that Christ shall come. Verse 41, I have all things as a testimony that these things are true. But then Alma doesn't stop there, and that's where so many people stop. People stop when they say, well, I just know the church is true. Or I just know God is true. But notice what Alma does. He says, let me give you the evidence for my testimony. So I think the antidote here is have a testimony and know what the evidence is for your testimony. There is rational thought behind testimony. Know what the evidence is. Whether that's, hey, I heard his voice, I had an experience with him that I know in ways I cannot describe were an actual being. I was being touched by a divine being. I know that. That experience was real to me. Or whether it's a logical argument like Alma here presents to Korahor. You need to have a testimony. Peter says to the saints in his epistle, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is in you. So what is your reason? Now, just this is a little bit of a diversion, but this is confirming all of us who believe in God. This is a confirming thing that Alma does. And so if Mike and I take a few minutes on this, you'll excuse us because I I love to do this. I love to talk about Alma's reasons for believing in God, and I love to add my own. So Alma has four reasons that he states. Here's how I know that God lives. Number one is this idea that 
all these my brethren believe in God. And in our day, the evidence is that there are billions of people that believe in a supreme being. There are not thousands, there are not millions, there are billions of people that believe in a supreme being, and that belief flavors their life and brings happiness and color and dimension. There are billions of people that believe in a supreme being, and if there were no being, if we were simply evolved animals, if we were simply the product of evolution and that there were no divine creature— then please explain how billions of people would get the instinctive idea that God really does exist. That's Alma's argument. And then the second one is, there are eyewitnesses. Holy prophets who are eyewitnesses. And the sad, and the interesting thing is, I don't mean sad, sad for those who distract. Their lives bring a whole lot of credibility to their testimony. Joseph Smith was as kind and gentle, and selfless a man as you'll ever meet. And that gave credibility to his testimony. These men and women who are testifiers of God in a powerful way have a life that brings that testimony credibility. That includes all of us, that there are those who are special witnesses of God and that their lives bring credibility to their testimony. There are eyewitnesses. Joseph Smith stands as a witness to the whole world that there is a God because he says, I saw him. Number three, the scriptures. Now ponder that for a minute. If there were no God, if there were no supreme being, how do you explain the scriptures? How do you explain that so many people read them and that they change lives? And that, you know, two guys like Mike and I would spend time on a podcast talking about a book of Scripture. Where did it come from? If there's no God, where did Scripture come from? Who wrote it and why? And why do we perpetuate it? The Scriptures stand as a witness that there seems to, there has to be a divine being because there's no logical explanation to why the Scriptures would be perpetuated if there weren't. And then the last one, one of my favorites as a biologist and that is order, the order in the universe. All things denote there is a God. Science will tell you, the law of entropy will tell you that all things increase in randomness if we don't order them. Think about your bedroom, think about your lawn, think about your car. If you don't put order and energy into a system, what happens? Chaos happens, and a room naturally gets dirty. If there is no God, if there's no source of order, then, then the universe should be increasing in randomness. And yet when we look out into the night sky, what we see is incredible order. And Alma says, that's my evidence. The order of the universe is my evidence that there is a supreme being who orders it, who controls it. Otherwise, it would just be increasing in randomness. I find it interesting that he gives, here's my evidence, so I believe, but here's why I believe. And I think we can have those conversations in an ideal speech condition. If I'm debating with somebody on Twitter about God, it's probably not going to end up well. It's just people talking past each other. But in my life, I've had experiences where people have come to me and said, man, I'm really struggling about this, this church history thing, or I'm really struggling believing in this. And I think we can have those conversations one-on-one with people. 
I do find it fascinating that Alma says, this is what I believe and this is why I believe. And then later, we'll do this in the next podcast when we get to Alma 32, Alma talks about epistemology, which is just a fancy way of saying the ways of knowing. This is how I know. This is how the Spirit works in my life. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the fourth argument that Alma gives in Alma 30 verse 44, where he just says, hey, the order of the universe itself is just a a testimony to me. And so I'm going to geek out on this. But before I do, I just want to say, you don't have to have a scientific background to believe in God. What I love about the Book of Mormon is just read the book. If you read the book, the spirit will permeate your soul and it will make, at least it has for me, it's made me realize that there's something outside of myself that I can know that God is real without having some of these intellectual arguments. Now, on the other side of this, we do live in a world where everybody has a microphone and everybody likes to attack faith and they like to make people feel foolish. And so I think we can defend it The evidence that I want to share really started out when I read a book by Dinesh D'Souza called What's So Great About Christianity. And there's a chapter in there where he talks about what's called the anthropic principle. If you were to look in like Webster's Dictionary on the, the anthropic principle, it would say something like this. The universe must have properties that make inevitable the existence of intelligent life. That's the strong form. There's the weak and strong form of the anthropic principle. To me, the anthropic principle is essentially this. The universe exists. Here we are. We're analyzing it. So for it to exist, at least in the rational world that we live in, it would have to exist in such a way so that we could observe it. And I know that sounds like circular logic, but essentially that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with a universe that is finely tuned so that human beings that have rational minds can observe it. There's a lot of things that have to go right to have the universe work. It looks like the universe has been designed. And so when Alma says the order of the planets, that's not an understatement. The anthropic principle is widely accepted among physicists. And if you want to go into a detailed book, you can read John Barrows and Frank Tipler. They wrote a book called The Anthropic Cosmological Principle. Now, if you want to read a shorter book, there's a really good one by Martin Rees. He's kind of a big deal in England. He wrote a book called Just Six Numbers. And I remember I read the book And I had to kind of go through it twice because some of the numbers really blew my mind. The universe is so finely tuned. And he says, let me just talk about six numbers that have to exist specifically. And if they're just barely off, the entire universe doesn't work. Now, Martin, he takes away the religious implications. He doesn't say, hey, let me prove to you that there's a God. But he doesn't hesitate to say, these values are providential. Like they, you know, it doesn't just randomly happen. And so there's six of them. The first couple deal with atoms and how they work. The third and fourth deal with the texture of the universe. And the fifth and sixth deal with the basic properties of space. So the first number is N. It's a power that is smaller than the electrical force, and he calls it N. There's a couple forces in atoms, right? You have what's called the electrical force and and the gravitational force. And so, for example, helium has two electrons bound by the electromagnetic force to a nucleus containing two protons with either one or two neutrons held together by the strong force. The two protons in this atom, they repel each other. Like, think of two magnets, right? They just repel each other. But the gravitational force pulls these together although this gravitational force is much weaker. How much weaker? Well, the gravitational force is 10 to the 36 power weaker as related to the electrical force. 
but you must have this force. For example, if this number, if this number n was bigger, then the universe would be too small. Everything in the universe would be closer together, but we wouldn't have the life in the universe as we know it. If n was smaller, the universe would be more complex, but there would be no life. And so that's the first number that Martin Rees throws at you. The second number is what he calls epsilon. This is the strong force. It's the measure of nuclear efficiency. So for example, when two nuclei fuse, we get an explosion of this matter into heat and energy. And so these two nuclei combine and we lose matter. How much? 0.007. That's the measure of the nuclear efficiency. If we have too much of this number is bigger, then all the hydrogen would have been used up in the Big Bang. Too little, and we have no elements. And so this measurement of nuclear efficiency is a number to explain when nuclei fuse, what happens to the loss of some of this matter, and it converts into energy. And so to him, he says, that number has to be finely tuned. The next couple of numbers deal with the texture and size of the universe. So this is the third number, and it's called omega. It's the density parameter of the universe at the time of the Big Bang. The universe has to have a certain condition that exists right when it comes into existence as the Big Bang happens. Now, I know that some of you maybe aren't fans of the Big Bang. The evidence is out there. And so for me, this is just Mike Day talking to me, the evidence is out there because we see the universe expanding. We have the tools necessary to see that the universe is expanding. So just think about it this way. If we could videotape the universe as it is and just record for years and years and years, and then if you hit play on the videotape and then the rewind button, you would see that it would come back together. And so that's kind of the idea behind it, in essence, that the universe at one time was a single point in space, a singularity as it were. And before the singularity, there was no universe as we know it. The singularity was introduced to some kind of mass amount of energy. There was this massive explosion. 15 billion years ago, the universe came into existence, or as Genesis says, in the beginning. Omega is the density of the universe at that point. And it had to expand. Now, if it expanded too quickly or too slowly, we have all kinds of problems. And so that's kind of wrapping up into this idea of omega. Another way to explain it is think, for example, that you're in the bottom of a well and you have a baseball in your hand. And you have to throw the baseball up to the point where the well opens into the earth. So imagine there's like a saran wrap at the top of the well and you have to throw the baseball up. And if you throw the baseball too soft, it never gets there. But if you throw it too hard, it penetrates the saran wrap at the top of the well and it doesn't go where you want it to go. You want it to go right to that point. And so some scientists call this the Goldilocks principle, right? It has to be just right. And so Omega's dealing with this, the density of the universe at the time of the Big Bang, and it has to be perfect. And if it's slightly off... We don't have a universe, at least the one that we could live in. The next number, the fourth, is lambda, and that's the cosmological constant. And it was theorized by Albert Einstein when thinking about the universe. It, people thought, you know, is the universe static? Is it this steady state universe? He believed that, this is Einstein here, that a steady static universe was impossible. So he theorized a cosmic force of repulsion that counteracts the forces of gravity so the universe doesn't collapse on itself. 
and to him, it would have to have been a small force affecting huge things. And since Einstein, scientists have concluded that there is this cosmological constant. There is this force that's counteracting the force of gravity, and it's a super-duper small force. I mean, it's just really difficult to comprehend in our mind. It's basically 120 zeros after the decimal point, 0.000, keep going 120 zeros later, and that's the position of the cosmological constant, an infinitesimally small number of force that has to exist that affects something massive. It affects huge things like a billion light years in diameter. This cosmological constant is something that scientists say is so finely tuned and yet so essential for the universe in which we live in to exist. And we'll post a couple links in the show notes for you to, if you want to watch a video about it or do some reading on the cosmological constant, this lambda to me of all six numbers is the most finely tuned of all the numbers. The next number is Q and it's all about texture and it's one one hundred thousandth or 10 to the negative fifth power. It's basically the measure of the strength of the bonds among galactic matter to form clusters. Like I said, it has to do with texture, but just think about this way. We have this universe that has texture in it. We have to have energy that interacts with mass to break up and disperse clusters, but we have to have clusters of matter that form to form stars. But essentially it has to do with texture, the texture of the universe itself. And the final number, very simple, we all can understand this, it's D, and it just means the number of dimensions. We live in three-dimensional space, plus we have time. And if you think about it, we couldn't live in a two-dimensional space where we're on a flat piece of paper. This third dimension gives us the universe that we have. And so because of these numbers, Martin Rees's conclusion is, hey, this is providential. There's something here. Now, it doesn't prove God, but what it does is it introduces an argument for a designer. Because of the anthropic principle, there's basically three positions that you can take. You got to pick one of them, right? Uh, The first one is just straight chance. Hey, everything here is by chance. The second position is what's called the multiverse theory. And the third is the designed universe. And obviously, Bryce and I believe that the universe was designed. The chance theory is essentially that, hey, we're all here by chance. Victor Stanger wrote this in a book called Not By Design. He says the universe is an accident. Richard Dawkins concurs. It is no accident that our kind of life finds itself on a planet whose temperature, rainfall, and everything else are exactly right. If the planet were suitable for another kind of life, it is that kind of life that would have evolved here. In science, this is called a selection effect. Since we're here, we know we're here, whatever the odds, the game of cosmic chance must have worked out in our favor. Now, that's kind of like saying this, like imagine, Bryce, you were convicted of a crime and you're going to die by firing squad and I line up my marksman, I got 100 guys and they've got a bullet and these guys are trained and they're pointing their gun at you and you're blindfolded and the guns go off and you don't get shot. And then you take off the blindfold and you look behind you and there's 100 bullet holes behind you in the wood but you haven't been hit. And I take you back to your cell and Bryce and you look at me and say, man, I was lucky. I was so lucky, (laughs) right? My Um, life is luck. Yeah. That's the selection effect. And so a lot of these smart scientists have essentially said, you know what? That's really tough. It's tough to do. And so the way out is this idea of multiverse. 
So Richard Dawkins has been very adamant about this. He's a very militant atheist, but he says, look, I realize that the anthropic principle puts me in a pickle. It looks like the universe has been designed. So his way out is the multiverse theory. And essentially what it is, is there's a bunch of universes, tons of them. And they all have these different numbers, right? They all have a different epsilon. They all have a different N. They all have a different omega. In these other universes, we can't have carbon-based life forms because the numbers don't play out. But in this universe, the numbers worked out. In Dawkins' argument, he says, I understand that this is theoretical physics. It's all theory. We, we can't prove it. So he's asking me to believe in something that we can't see. Correct. And yet he criticizes me for believing in a God because I can't see him. Right. I want to make this point. I don't think you can prove or disprove God, but you can create a climate where at least you can start asking the questions. In essence, if you're going to take Dawkins' position, then the multiverse theory, that's your card. You got to play it. And we're back to faith. So I would contend that it does take faith to be an atheist just like I would contend that it takes faith to believe in God. There's just so much stuff I don't know. Well, didn't Joseph Smith say, if there's anything virtuous, lovely, of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things? We should hunger after truth. Yeah. But we ought to avoid those things that are trying to destroy my faith. Yeah. I want to make the point, but do you see what Mike was doing? Mike found things that resonated in his soul. And that's what we all need to do. I believe in God for these reasons, whatever they are. They don't have to be my reasons. They don't have to be Mike's reasons. And my reasons don't have to be your reasons. But I need to be able to say to someone, I believe in God and here's why. And I love to see the passion of any individual who says, here's why I believe what I believe. Because they can take a stand. They can look someone in the eye and say, I believe that, and here's why I believe that. And so I love that Mike did that, because if anything else, what I wanted you to take away is to hear the thrill, the passion, the excitement in someone's mind as he shared his reasons for believing in something. And we all need that. We all need those reasons to be able to say, here's why I believe. I think if Richard Dawkins was my son or my brother, I could have a rational conversation with him because we have a relationship, and I would acknowledge his points. Uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a book called River Out of Eden, and essentially he says, listen, a lot of this stuff is fairy tales that you guys are pushing on religion. I remember when I read those books, I had to reformulate some of my assumptions about Scripture, and I think that's okay. And I, I could acknowledge some of his position, but some of these things in the realm of faith that can neither be proven nor, nor disproven to me are spiritually discerned. I think we need to be respectful, but I also think we can say, hey, this is what I know and this is how I know. Many years ago, I, you know, I was young. I didn't come from, at least I was not in a position of great faith. I was in a position of, of being a skeptic and I was a teenager. But I'll never forget picking up the Book of Mormon one day in my room. And I'll never forget the spirit that came upon me that just, I cannot deny it to this day. It was just overwhelming for me to know and to comprehend that there was something outside of myself. That was so strong, Bryce, that it compelled me to want to go on a mission. I had experiences in the MTC that I can't deny that were just spiritual nature where I understood and started to comprehend that if I did certain things and I created a climate, that the Spirit would be with me. And since those days, you know, I understand it and feel it in different ways. It's not all one thing. But for me, I just can't deny that there's a God. I have these experiences. You know, when I take the sacrament, when I'm sitting next to my wife— for me, some of those are the most sacred moments, and I can't deny it. 
I acknowledge the arguments of the atheist position. There are some strong ones. Richard Dawkins is not a stupid guy. But at the same time, I come from that Alma 30 verse 44. Like I know and I know why I know. And I can't, I'm like Joseph where he's like, I cannot deny it. I can't do it. But yet at the same time, I see both sides. And I think in our relationships that we have with people, if they can know that you're hearing them, but then they give you a chance to say, okay, this is what I know. And this is why I know it. And we can just put down our weapons of calling each other stupid and just talk about the argument. And I also think testimony is a, is a really important thing. I think if you look at your loved one and say, hey, I can't explain everything, and maybe I can answer this question, but let me tell you what I do know. And that exactly is the number three on my list. Have a testimony based on evidence. And it is personal evidence. It is. It doesn't necessarily have to be intellectual. It doesn't have to be scientific. For some people, the evidence is spiritual, and that's fine, as long as you have a testimony based on evidence. Now, ironically, the beauty of the Book of Mormon is the very next chapter will talk about how do you gain a testimony based on evidence. So let's do two more on our list. I think it's very important that we know the truth. In every one of these cases, as you go through Jacob with Sherem, and then Alma with Nehor and Korahor and the Zoramites, he sought to teach truth. He pulled out the scriptures. He referred to the scriptures. I think it's fascinating. Go, if you go back to Jacob chapter 7 to Sherem, have you ever uh, been in an accident or someone you loved was in an accident where a seatbelt would have saved them? And what does everyone who loved that person do from then on? You know, they, they overtly try and wear a seatbelt as an acknowledgement that this would have saved the person I love. It's funny, their reaction to, to Sherem. Jacob chapter 7, verse 23, it came to pass that peace and the love of God was again restored among the people, and they searched the scriptures and hearken no more to the words of this wicked man. I think it's significant that Jacob points out that, oh, they went back to searching the scriptures, as if he's trying to acknowledge that, you know what, this would have saved many people from being led astray had they searched the scriptures. Know the doctrine. Be able to recognize a twist when you hear it. They're so dangerous. They're very dangerous. So know your doctrine to be able to say, wait a minute, Okay, when you say, like if I'm speaking to Nehor, oh, you're saying that everyone's going to be saved? Oh, I know that that's true because I know this doctrine and that. I know universal resurrection, uh, the vast majority are going to a kingdom of glory, but I think you're trying to say everyone's going to the celestial kingdom, and that's false. You see, I know my doctrine. I think the twists are harder to spot than the Korah whores. Yes. Like reading Richard Dawkins is not the same as reading someone who's using theological arguments, but they're just twisting it, right? Yep. And so you got to be careful when someone says, well, I don't need an organized religion. I don't need a church. I just need God. Do you know the doctrine well enough to say, well, here's what you do need? Or is it just, you know, maybe it's opinion. They claim that, oh, it's your opinion, that you Mormons think we need a church. Well, we really don't. Is it opinion, or is it our doctrine that says, here's why we need an organized religion, and here's what you miss out on if you don't have an organized religion? Do you know the doctrine? Do you know the doctrinal reasons for doing what we're doing? So I think it's significant to me. If you'll go to Alma chapter 1, notice how... Gideon contends against Nehor. Verse 7, admonishing him with the word of God. And then go to Alma chapter 31. What was Alma's attempt 
to help the Zoramites. When Alma says, hey, here's what we're going to do after he saw that what the Zoramites were doing, notice verse 5. As the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had a more powerful effect upon the mind of the people than the sword or anything else which had happened to them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the word of God. Know the truth. He was going to go in there and teach truth. So know your doctrine. That leads us to number five and just a caution be careful when it comes to anti-Mormon and anti-Christ literature. Let me raise a warning voice. If you'll turn back to Alma, the end of the story, Korahor, verse 52, eventually says, I always knew that there was a God. Now, it's a little side comment on that. For the consolation of everyone who has someone they love that's walked away from the church, that statement should resonate with you. Korahor says, I always knew that there was a God. President Joseph Fielding Smith said the following, when a man has the manifestations of the Holy Ghost, it leaves an indelible impression on his soul, one that is not easily erased. It is spirit speaking to spirit, and it comes with convincing force. A manifestation of an angel or even the Son of God himself would impress the eye and mind and eventually become dimmed. But the impressions of the Holy Ghost seek deeper into the soul and are more difficult to erase. On another occasion, President Smith said, Through the Holy Ghost, the truth is woven into the very fiber and sinews of the body so that it cannot be forgotten. They know the truth. They still have it burned inside their soul. But notice what he says, why he taught, the reason he taught what he taught. Verse 53, and here's the warning. Uh, the devil hath deceived me. He appeared unto me in the form of angels, said, go and teach. And I taught, I taught them, ready for this statement? I taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. There's something inside the natural man that wants God not to exist, that wants the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to not be true, because then the natural man gets freed. And so there's something in hearing those things that is pleasing to the natural mind. Be careful with that. And that is often the trap. Notice Korahor said, I taught them because they were pleasing unto the carnal mind. And I taught them even until I had much success insomuch that I verily believed they were true. Even though in the previous verse, he says, I knew they weren't. I knew they weren't. But I convinced myself that they were because they were pleasing to the carnal mind. And that's why I withstood the truth. Alma says, remember how Korahor says, lift the curse, lift this curse that's come upon me? Even though Korahor has just acknowledged that there's a God, listen to what Alma says, if the curse should be taken from thee, you would go back to teaching these things. That's the pull that the natural man has on us. Now, there is a time and a place to have these conversations. There is a time to know the evidence. Mike and I, I believe, have read every critic. We are familiar with what they're saying. But we need to do it in such a way that you don't get sucked in by the carnal nature of that material. I don't know if that material is for everybody. It's such an interesting thing because I don't want to ever tell any, any student or anyone, hey, don't go read stuff, right? But know what you're picking up and know what you're dealing with. And then sometimes we come across it. Brother or sister so-and-so is preparing a lesson, 
next thing they knew, they spent an hour reading anti-Mormon literature and now they feel stupid. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And so you got to ask yourself when you pick it up, do I really want to take the time to unpack this? Because anything can be unpacked, but you have to just be committed to that time commitment. And not. I don't know if it's the best use of everybody's time, right? Right. And that's the caution. The caution is, I know what I believe, I know what people are claiming, and I've had the rational thought, I have the arguments, I've wrestled with this, versus I recognize that this is appealing to my natural man, and my natural man is going to pull me into this. And the more I feed my natural man, the more I may end up believing these very things. So there's a balance there. And so I just raise the caution voice, be careful, know that this material can often be pleasing to the natural mind and can just suck you in to the point where you were not prepared for that overwhelming natural man rush, and it sucks you out of the gospel. So just to counter here, just so you can see the balance, go back to verse 20 of chapter 30. When Korahor went to Jershon, which is where the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are living, Verse 20, they were more wise than many of the Nephites, for they took him and bound him and carried him before Alma. In other words, no, this is not the conversation we're going to have. You are not looking for a safe conversation. You're just trying to destroy faith. I don't need to do that. And he just, they just stopped. And let me give you another way to look at this be careful analogy. You can do what they did in Jershon, where you're like, I'm just not going to listen. It's also okay to say, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. Korhor, I hear your argument. I don't have an answer right now. It's okay to not have the answer and take that, that objection or whatever that argument is. And I call this the put on the shelf principle. I'm going to take that argument. I'm going to put it on the shelf over here and you get back to what you're doing. And then when the time's right, you can take that back off the shelf, put it back on the desk and say, deep breath. Okay. I'm going to dive into this. I'm going to, this historical situation or this textual issue, whatever the criticism is, and I'm going to take the time to do it when you have the time. We are not obligated to defend everything all the time to all people, are we? And that's verse 29. So you have verse 20 where the, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's just simply, nope, you're out. And then verse 29, I love what the chief, the high priest does and the chief judge Now when the high priest and the chief judge saw the hardness of his heart, yea, when they saw he would revile even against God, they would not make any reply to his words. And I think part of that is, I don't need to answer that question. I am not being foolish if I don't have an answer. And that's the ploy. That's the false idea they want you to think, that if you can't answer every single question they pose, then your religion is false. And that's not true. You don't need to feel foolish if you can't answer a question. It's okay to say, I don't know. By the way, but that's here's every, what I do know. That's every field. Any Every expert, field. If you talk to a doctor or a scientist or anybody who has expertise and you push them on something, we swim in the waters of stuff. We just don't know stuff. And we're not going to throw away science or medicine because of the stuff we don't know. Right? Nor should we throw away our religious beliefs because there are things we don't know. Don't buy into it. You're not a fool if you can't answer every single question they pose, because the reality is you can pose a whole lot of questions that they can't answer either. Don't buy into that phrase. And so I love that they just, they wouldn't reply. There is a time to just simply say, I hear you, I acknowledge what you're saying, but I don't have a reply for you, nor do I think you really want one. And so 
be careful. Those are the five I would just remind everyone. Learn to recognize their tactics. That's very important because if you don't recognize what they're doing, we may be more vulnerable to it. Recognize their tactics to make you feel foolish, make you feel bound, or when they twist truth, you need to recognize when truth got twisted. Number two, just encourage everyone, keep the performances of the church. There is safety in prayer. There is safety in reading the scriptures. Daily, weekly, monthly, yearly performances of the church. There is safety in meeting with my bishop in a temple recommend interview. There is safety in standing accountable for my payment of tithes. There is something in all those daily performances. There's something about fasting. There's safety in fasting and having family home evening on a weekly basis. For me, it ties it to the Spirit. If the Spirit's coming into my life, if I'm wrestling with some issue, because often I am, I'm tackling some new thing, and I'm troubled in mind or spirit, and the Spirit comes in, and then you have evidence. Yeah. You have back, evidence. Back to that. And so the next one is have a testimony based on evidence. And I love that the very next podcast is going to answer that question. How do you gain evidence? Ways of knowing. Ways of knowing. How do you gain evidence? And then I love that, that all of these people in the Book of Mormon, when they contend with an antichrist, they use the scriptures. They know the doctrine. They want to make sure they're clear on the doctrine. So this is one of the reasons we go to church, one of the reasons we study the scriptures, is to make sure that you know what truth is. Number five, be careful, because many of the things that anti-Mormons are saying are pleasing to the natural man. It doesn't mean we should just ignore it, but that also doesn't mean we're acknowledging that the church is false if we ignore it. There's a balance between dealing with the questions that need to be answered And knowing that this material can be pleasing to the natural man and can suck me in and overwhelm me. So make sure you find a good balance in that and not get sucked in. I leave everyone with my witness that I know God lives and I know the Book of Mormon is true. There is just so much, there's so many mounds of evidence. I think if you were to count up the number of times in our podcast where Mike and I pointed out to what, what something that was evidence to us that the book is true, it would be in the hundreds by now. I love to point out my evidence that the book is true, that God does live. And at the end of the day, the reason I know God lives is because I communicate with him and he communicates with me and I love him. And I know he loves me. Thanks, Bryce. I love hearing him just how he breaks it down with these five things, how to combat the Antichrist of our lives. I love those five things. I also find it interesting, Bryce, at the end, Korahor can't talk. His weapon that he uses to combat the Savior is taken away. Many years ago, I had a personal experience with this. Um, I had a stroke. And I am convinced... It's that easy. If God wants to make it so you can't talk, all he has to do is just touch this little blood vessel in your brain. It's super simple. And if that blood vessel is not working, you're not talking. And so I'm one of those people. I like to have a naturalistic explanation for Korhor. I think he had a stroke. But it doesn't say that. Like We don't don't have a medical examiner on the scene in Alma 30, but he can't talk. And there's some irony there, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna wax historical just for a bit before we close. I'm sorry, but I have to do this. I think there's some poetic irony here. 
So he can't talk because that's his weapon. God takes it away from him. And some of you may know this story. There was a guy back in the 80s that was a master forger, and his name was Mark Hoffman. And he forged a lot of documents. He actually sold documents to the U.S. government. He forged some things, and he got really into dealing with church documents, and he forged a bunch of them, and he really wanted to... um, Obviously, his number one goal was to make money, but he also wanted to hurt people's faith. And so he would forge documents that made the church look bad. And I remember Elder Oaks gave a talk during this time because there was one of the documents that he had forged that caused a lot of people to have their faith shaken. And Elder Oaks said some of these things that you just talked about. One of the things he says is, hey, we need to be careful. Let's not jump to any hasty conclusions about these documents. And at the time, no one knew they were forgeries. They were later proven to be forgeries. He ended up bombing people and he killed people and he he's in jail now. But the, the reason why I'm sharing this story about Mark Hoffman is because in a way he's kind of a modern day Korahor. And I just want to share this brief little historical piece of evidence. In 1988, before the Utah Board of Pardons, Mark Hoffman said that he thought planning a bomb that killed Kathy Sheets was, quote, almost like a game to him. He said, at the time I made the bomb, my thoughts were that it didn't matter if it was Mrs. Sheets, a child, or a dog, or whoever. I don't care. Within an hour, the parole board, struck by his callous disregard for human life, decided that it would be best for him to spend his natural life in prison. After he was imprisoned, uh, he was obviously excommunicated by the church. His wife divorced him. Um, And then in that process of time, he attempted suicide. He took a bunch of pills and tried to overdose. He was revived, uh, but not before um, spending 12 hours lying on his right arm, blocking its circulation. And it caused muscle atrophy. And his forging hand that he used to forge the documents no longer worked. I remember reading that thinking, oh my gosh, this is Korahor. Like there's, there's this cosmic justice, there's this cosmic karma, and his hand that he used to fight against Christ and his church is no longer usable. I just want to end with my testimony, and however, however you take this, I do like these five things. Learn to recognize their tactics. Don't forget the performances. Have a testimony based on evidence. Know your stuff. Know the truth and be careful. But at the end of the day, if I had to pick one thing, it's that relationship with the Spirit. It's that tying into God. And so I just want to leave my witness that there is a God. There's something bigger than us. And regardless of, you know, however these arguments pan out, I really do think, like Bryce said, every one of you that's listening is going to have somebody that you know, probably someone really close to you, that's going to be struggling May we have these conversations with them before they go full Korahor. May we have them with them as they're in the state of, man, I don't know, what do I do? I'm, I'm kind of wavering. And I really do think because of the internet, we can reach people in positive ways. May we do so in the ideal speech condition when we're listening and not shouting. And that's my invitation to you. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.